Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Critical Witness. I'm Phil, and uh, we've got a really special guest with us this evening, uh, Dr. Sam Chan, who's written several books now, but one of our favorites, well, it's my favorite, I think Dan's read it as well, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, highly recommend it. Um, It's a privilege to have uh, Sam on with us, and uh, if you want to ask us questions as we chat, feel free to. Um, but we're going to get started straight away because we've got about 50, 55 minutes before Sam needs to go to work. So we're grateful for him to wake up early for us being in Australia. Sam, welcome. It's good to have you on. Hey, Phil. Good to be here. So And Dan, good to see you too. Dan, I'm still getting used to your wallpaper, mate. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I need to I need to sort that out, don't I'm I, I think? Still getting there every time. Um, I'll try not to bring that up every video that we do from now, now on. Um, Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, in five minutes or less. What, uh, Who you are, what do you do, why you're a Christian? Sure. So my name is Sam Chan, and as you can hear, I am coming to you from Sydney, Australia, and it's it's six in the morning here. So I, it's a Friday morning. I am in the future. So if you want to know what the stock markets did in the UK you know, today, I will let you know. Uh, and that, that music, that music intro was just perfect because it just woke me up. Like 30 minutes ago, I was fast asleep. I was in REM sleep, and that music... <laughs> I'm being turn it down. Oh my gosh, you're, you're going to wake the neighbors. All my neighbors are still asleep. But anyway, so a bit more about me. I was born in Hong Kong, but my parents moved to Australia when I was just a baby. We came to Australia in the 1960s when I was probably the only Asian. Actually, my brother and I were the only Asians in our elementary and primary schools. Then I did high school in Sydney studied medicine at Sydney University, I worked as a full-time doctor for about four years in the hospital system. Then one thing led to another, I had a career change. I decided I'm going to go into theology and become a teacher of theology. So I did a one-year diploma in theology, then I did a three-year bachelor of theology, then I went to the United States and did a PhD in theology. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, so that took five years came back to Australia. I taught at a Bible college. I taught theology, ethics, preaching, uh, evangelism for about five years at a Bible college. I went back to medicine for one year and now I'm back into full-time Christian ministry. I'm with City Bible Forum where we help people have a connection to the sacred in the workplace and I still work one or two days a week as a doctor, as a surgical assistant. And that's why I have to leave in about one hour's time because I have an 8 a.m. start at a hospital. Fortunately, there's no traffic out there right now. Sydney has gone back into lockdown. It's like a rerun of 2020. In fact, that is a crazy weird thing. We all thought 2021 was going to be ah, a reboot. You know, we're going to go back to normal. It's been a worse normal than last year because we had worse bushfires, 
worse floods, and now we have a worse variant of the of the COVID virus. So it's it's really messing with our heads, and I'm sure it's messing with your heads in the UK. I was just yeah. sharing earlier before we went live. The crazy thing was last year it seemed like Sydney and Australia we had the COVID virus managed perfectly. We're thinking, why can't the whole world be like us? Like we we, <laughs> we locked down early. We 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 did this properly. And so we're, we're having live sport, we're having live music, we're having concerts, and we're looking at the rest of the world still in lockdown. And we're sort of smugly patting ourselves on the back, thinking, how good are we? And now we've just had to go back into lockdown for a variety of reasons, some in our control, some not in our control. And then we watch you guys in the UK with the crowds at Wembley, the crowds at Wimbledon, and they wow, why can't we be like the UK? Look at these guys. They got it right. So there you go. We have UK envy right now. Well, I'm not sure how long it will last. We're going full on. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore by Monday. It's crazy because it really is n equals zero. I actually said said to my statistic accountant friends, "Is this n equals one that we're going through this for the first time, or is it n equals zero because we've never done this before?" But really, in the Western world, we're going through n equals zero. There is no playbook. We can criticize governments or whatever, but really, it's not like they can go from past experience. Oh, in the past no there is no past experience and you can't predict the future you really don't know what next month will be let alone next year it's been a total new normal a new wake-up call for us yeah for everyone and, and sort of fighting over how to how to do things in churches and yeah every, everyone seems to be an expert ex except the government but <laughs> <laughs> well, the other point is that they cannot by definition be any experts because we've yeah. had no prior experience at this so an expert usually has to have prior experience, you know, 10,000 hours, according to Malcolm Gladwell. No one's had 10,000 hours at this. We're all here. We're all newbies for the first time. Yeah. Funny thing yeah. is um, I do that I do that BibleInOneYear.org program, you know, where you read through the whole Bible in one year. I do it every second year. And every year, and this year is one of my years when I go through it. And every time I do it, you discover things in the Bible you had never noticed before. So I was going through Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Usually, I usually fly through because just all this data, which seems so irrelevant. <laughs> and suddenly, I'm seeing things in there this year, which said things like, "If if a person has a disease, um, they need to isolate for 14 days. And if anyone's <laughs> been exposed to this person, they too need to isolate for 14 days." I thought this is incredible. Like. It's, it's like we've gone back 4,000 years because we're living life like the, the Israelites had to do. And suddenly yeah. all those weird laws that you just skimmed over, which, which seemed weird and embarrassing and cringeworthy and something that your Chinese grand auntie would try to tell you, you know, oh, if, you, if your hair's falling out, then you need to do this. You think, whoa, whoa, this all makes sense now. Like, pandemics were a real thing 4,000 years ago. I needed to be contained. Absolutely. Mm. So I'll be interested in just in a little bit more about your so that's city Bible forum. What are the sort of main things that you're finding with um, with work? Because I mean, in how do you say your work when you're online or, or remote working? I guess is that a big um, shift in in what you're doing? And how long have you been at City Bible Forum doing this? 
okay, so I, I missed the last minute of what you said, so my line just went weird. I just heard City oh. Bible from, is that what you're doing? And I yeah, thought, you well, know what, I can go to town in this question, but I better find out what you did ask first. We, we, we don't need to ask any more questions. That's you for the next hour. Um, right. uh, just asking, like, have you noticed the shift over the last year? Like, what, what, how have you shifted what you're doing in terms of sharing faith at work? Like, what does that look like when everyone's remote working or is that been more oh, yeah. yes yes so um def definite shift with well, a big shift is uh no one works in an office anymore so even i myself my with city bible forum my office is in the city and i probably went in there less than five times in the last in the last 12 months so on the one hand it's it's meant we've had a pivot like whatever were our usual avenue avenues of um doing evangelism, we, we've had to change. So just to explain how City Bible Forum does evangelism, it's a lot like how university campuses do evangelism to uh, students on university campus. Well, with City Bible Forum, instead of a university campus, we have a, a working business district. And instead of university students, we're reaching out to city workers. And so we do that by networking Christians together. So they, they're encouraged, they're built up, and they pray for each other, and they pray for their non-believing friends. But also with City Bible Forum, we look for creative ways of bringing the good news of Jesus to city workers. We understand that people aren't going to walk into a church, so we're, we're gonna, we have to offer other ways, like, um, I don't know, like creative TED Talks, and that's often what I do, or lunchtime talks, or we have meetings in, in movie cinemas, and while you got to think with COVID, we couldn't do any of those things. So we had to pivot to doing things to camera, hybrid models. And so on the one hand, that meant we had to change everything that we did overnight. But on the other hand, it opened way more doors than were closed before because suddenly you realise, oh, normally 30 people might have turned up at lunch. Today, 300 people nationwide tuned in and some of them were overseas, internationally watching in. And so it definitely opened up more doors. And we put out something called the Post-COVID Playbook. And I think you get, if you just search up Sam Chan, City Bible Forum, Post-COVID Playbook, much of it was, well, how can we do ministry and evangelism in a post-COVID world? And we called it Post-COVID because we put it out in March last year. We thought it's only going to last one or two months. So by the time it comes out to the audience, it's going to be post COVID, and then it came out in May, and Australia completely flattened the curve by May, and we thought, oh, there we go, out. whatever we put out is completely irrelevant. But since then, we've had, boom, a wave, another wave, and now we've had the biggest, probably it's our third or fourth wave of COVID. So the book has stayed relevant. And the whole premise of the book is our Western storyline has been deconstructed because our Western storyline is founded on individual freedom, security, certainty, autonomy, I get to make my choices and I know what the future holds. And that's why I, I am to, I'm to blame. I'm responsible for my future. I need to chase my dreams and do whatever it takes to make me happy. And suddenly overnight, all those foundations of the Western storyline have been completely deconstructed. And so I think people are putting on a brave face, you know, making it seem like everything's okay. When deep down, we have no foundations. The fascinating thing is what happens during lockdown. So 
last time Australia had a severe lockdown, you, you were only allowed out for three reasons, only three reasons besides seeing a doctor. One was to get outdoor exercise and you think, okay, fair enough. The, the second one was to get a haircut. Who could have believed that? Like a haircut was a life essential. <laughs> but the third one was to buy alcohol. And when you think, you know what, I get it. People, the, the people are not coping right now. And David Brooke last year in the New York Times put out this amazing article. He said, we never talk about the 1918 flu pandemic. You know, um, we talk about World War One. we talk about World War Two. we talk about, yeah, it was a tragedy, a, a loss of life, but, you know, it brought the community together. So people often say that the happiest, apparently the happiest decade in the 20th century was the 1930s. The Depression yeah. and World War Two gave everyone this collective sense of purpose and transcendent manifest destiny. But then David Brooks says, we talk about World War One, World War Two, but we don't talk about the 1918 flu pandemic, even though more people died in a pandemic than World Wars One and Two, maybe combined. And he said, why is that? He said, because there's a lot of shame when it comes to a pandemic. People don't like who they became during a pandemic. Hmm. That's really interesting, the, the difference in, in how that's worked out. Uh, Dan, what are you thinking? You've got another question? No, no, no. It's just it's, we, we're discussing things I hadn't thought we would discuss. So it's interesting. I mean, that's just got me thinking. these live broadcasts. Hey, like, really? yeah. So I mean, I, I think it just got me thinking then about why we don't talk about the pandemic. Well, I think one of the things why the why first and second world war get discussed so much is because, in in a sense, they're avoidable. And there's something about a pandemic that when it when it comes, it, you know, it's not often. You know, there's not human agency involved. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, yeah, me I think <laughs> it There's something scary. It's, I mean, they're both scary. I mean, because we, we talk about the world. Well, I was talking to my kids about this was this week. You know, we remind people about the wars because they're so terrible, we want to avoid them happening. So we have to, it has to be in part of our consciousness because we want to try and remember how horrid they were so that we don't, uh, we try and avoid ever uh, you know, encountering one again. But there is, there's something about a pandemic that once it's over, there's such a relief, you kind of don't want to, um, you know, talk about it again. But um, yeah. Yeah, so David Brooks' point is we're not proud of who we are in a pandemic. Yeah. Like we're proud of maybe how we rose above adversity in world wars, how we all work together, but no one seems to work together in a pandemic. And that's David Brooks' point. It's sort of every person for themselves at that moment. And we see that in the hoarding of toilet paper. In I don't know, like in, in, in America, they hoarded guns. In the UK, they probably hoarded coal. In Australia, we hoarded toilet paper of all things. Like there's, there's nothing proud about hoarding toilet paper. And there's this shameful moment as you walk out of a supermarket with a handful of a pile of toilet paper, like hoping to make no eye contact with anyone. And so and, and let's face it, you know, also the, the liquor stores were just empty. You see people shopping trolleys full of they they had to ration alcohol in Australia. I don't know what it was like in the UK. And again, people aren't proud of who they become during a pandemic. And so Oh, yeah. And the other thing about a pandemic, and you can look up this because I had to research this when I had to give a talk for City Bible Forum. I think it's called Fear of the Future. So just Google Sam Chan City Bible Forum Fear of the Future. And I found out there's a fear expert called Peter Sandman in 
I think he's in the USA, Peter Sandman, and he talks about how our heads and our hearts are always out of sync when it comes to fears. So, for example, when it comes to shark attacks, our hearts disproportionately are afraid of sharks because, oh, there's something horrible and invisible and uncontrollable about sharks. When our heads deep down say, oh, come on, that's an irrational fear. There's so few shark attacks. You've got more chances of winning the lottery or being struck by lightning before you get attacked by a shark. And then you get the opposite where our our um, hearts are not afraid when they should be afraid. Like, you know, when it comes to alcohol and cigarettes, you know, where there's 30,000 deaths per year from each one in the USA. Um, so our heads say, I think I should be afraid of this. But our hearts say, oh, no, that's all right. Nothing to be afraid of. But then Peter Sandman says something interesting happens in pandemics. Our hearts know they should be afraid. Like, well, we should be taking more precautions but our heads don't want to be afraid in a pandemic because we don't want to look silly. We don't want to overreact. So we don't want to wear masks. We don't want to shut down. We try all these rational, we try to rationalize something we should be afraid of. So our hearts and our heads are out of sync during pandemics, according to Peter Sandman. And as I say in the post COVID playbook for City Bible Forum, this is where we can explore different emotional entry points into the gospel. I learned this from a Timothy Keller talk I heard on Acts 16. In Acts 16, three sets of people get evangelized by Paul and Silas. We have Lydia, the business person, and she has a reasoned discussion with Paul and Silas, and she's reasoned into the gospel. But then we have the servant girl who's possessed by evil an evil spirit. She's owned by earthly masters. So she lives in fear and control uh, of, of horrible people. Uh, but she has a power encounter with Jesus where she's set free from her earthly, earthly masters and set free from the evil spirit. But then we have the jailer who fails at his work. So he, he's, a, he's a person of duty. And so he's shamed He's dishonoured. That's why he wants to kill himself. It's the last honourable thing he can do. But then he sees in Paul and Silas who are singing away in prison, he sees a way of life that works, a shalom, a peace, a joy, a hope, and he wants what they have. So typically in the West, we've done evangelism like we would evangelise Lydia, the business person, rational discussions. We have question and answer, forums, arguments, apologetics, Bible talks, and that's okay. That works for someone like Lydia, the business person. But now with the pandemics, we're finding that people are much more like the, the servant girl or, or the jailer. You know, they, they have a life, a way of life that is not working. It's been deconstructed. It's fallen apart. They've lost their way of life. They've lost an income. There's a fear of the invisible. They're under the control of forces beyond their control. Maybe they can discover a power encounter with Jesus where they discover a freedom they didn't know before. Also, they see a way of life that works, a joy, a beauty, a peace, a hope, and they want that shalom. They want that way of life as well. That's, that's really helpful. And I, th I think there's something that I found really helpful in your uh, evangelism and skeptical world, the different views of um, almost metaphors of the, the gospel and, and how you can bring them about into in different uh perspectives and views and worldviews and i mean the the three they're generally seen now as the main ones and probably it's become a trend but it's also been quite a helpful trend i think of the sort of 3d gospel type take on shame and honor and fear and power and um 
uh, guilt and innocence in in that sense. Uh, although, yeah, reason reasoning is quite a, a different kind of view on that. I would mean, just be interested, and there's a, there's a question in the chat here that, that asks: Is there a chief gospel metaphor that we should lean towards with the pandemic? And and I think the idea of shame, which has been sort of almost foreign, not fully foreign to the West, is now becoming far more understandable. Uh, and we've used it already in this conversation several times. Um, is there like a go-to metaphor that you would say is now prioritised over others? Or are you just saying, take a pick as to who's in front of you? Uh, what, what, what kind of recommendation would you have on, on that? Oh, yeah, I think definitely play what's in front of you. I don't think there's one cheap go-to metaphor, use this and or you know, or else use this or else you're doing it the wrong way, use this or, you know, because it's the only best metaphor. No, I think you play what's in front of you. But I do find shame seems to really, really work for, for me right now. And it's interesting, Andy Crouch, a cultural analyst in the USA, he foresaw this ages ago. He wrote some article on Christianity today almost 10 years ago on, and it was called The Return of Shame in the West. And then you got someone like John Ronson, UK writer, TED speaker. He put out something, so you've been publicly shamed. So how, how we have now returned to tribal societies where, you have to, where we have to virtue signal our honour to show our, our, our belonging in the tribe and that we're good enough to stay in the tribe. But once you've done a small slip up, you're cancelled, you're shut out, you're shamed and... Uh, Douglas Murray, the, the Madness of Crowds, I think he's also a UK writer. He, he says the reason why people don't say sorry is that there's no point saying sorry. There is no forgiveness. Once you've been shamed and once you've been dishonoured by your own tribe, there's no coming back. There's no forgiveness. So I found shame really helpful. And the examples I give in my book, I think I give it in evangelism in a sceptical world, maybe in how to talk about Jesus in those books. When I speak in high school chapels, and, we, and, and I come as the bozo who's the Christian speaker giving the Easter talk or the Christmas talk and everyone hates me, boo, boo, boo. Um, I, and people say, well, so what do you believe about sin? And you can hear the room go, quiet, because here's the Christian bozo speaker. He's going to talk about sin. And I say, well, this, this is how the Bible explains it. There's a good God who loves us, who made us, and he's given us good things to enjoy, but we don't worship him in fact we, we've shamed him and that moment the crowd is silent and I thought, ha, you know what deep down I think he's right and what we're doing is return to the way the apostles in the book of Acts explain the gospel to the unchurched unreached cultures so to the reached cultures who had the Bible who should have known better they gave the typical you know guilt uh, and and you need the the guilt model where God has sent you the Messiah, but you killed him. <laughs> like, uh, uh, so you need to repent of that. You know, you've broken the law. Whereas to the unreached, unchurched people without the scriptures who didn't know better, they said things like, there's God who sends rain. He makes your crops grow, uh, but you don't worship him. In fact, you can't contain him in a temple like this. And so they use a shame thing. So I think, and, and definitely shame really sums up how we feel in a pandemic. No one likes who they became. There are a lot of secret sins, a lot of secret vices, a lot of secret addictions during pandemics. My friends who work as chaplains, 
they tell me, like, there's a lot of stuff out there that you people don't know about that people tell us chaplains. So people don't like who they become. But also I say definitely reach people like we reach the jailer as well. Uh, I was listening to a podcast called Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen, run by Colin Hansen, and he had Andy Crouch on, and they were talking about the K curve. I No, I would say the K curve. Here we go. And so during the pandemic, you know, we didn't have the usual in economics, you can either have a U curve, you know, up and down, you can have a J curve down and up, but they talk about a K curve where there are two limbs. So half of society did better during the pandemic. And usually that's white collar university educated professionals. So people in banking, in, in some sectors of retail, they did way better out of the pandemic. You know, say the stock market has gone up. Housing has gone up. So half of the community has done really well out of the pandemic, but the other half has done really badly in the pandemic and they may never recover. And usually it's the blue collar working class and their, their way of life is broken. They have negative cash flow. They don't know how they're going to pay the bills. Their, their businesses have been shut down. And that's almost like the jailer. You think about the jailer is your, your working class uh, guy uh, not professionally educated, whereas Lydia, the business person, was your professionally educated person. His way of life has fallen apart through the earthquake, uh, through the pandemic. I'd uh, say so we can show them there is a shalom, a peace, a hope, a joy. And part of what I tell Christians to do and part of what I tell my family to do is during lockdown when we do online church service, and we have to sing like no one sings during that moment. No one's be the bozo singing by themselves in the kitchen. But I say, let's sing up, open the windows, let's sing up. That's what Paul and Silas did. And if people can hear us singing praises and worship, uh, you know, in a lockdown, people are going to say, hey, I want, I want what they have. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in some of your. Um the sort of challenges of sharing the gospel during a pandemic because um i, I mean uh, when, when you start talking about you mentioned how obviously in the bible it talks about god bringing rain and you know um for you know is in, indiscriminate in, in the sort of good things but then what, what what are the sort of questions you get about pandemic the pandemic and problem of evil and things like that because um it's almost pandemics are a little bit worse. I think building on what you said in terms of looking at how half the population have done very well and 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 those who are already not necessarily doing great in terms of human capital and 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 um and things have been probably hit hardest by by the pandemic and probably long term for the future is as uh, as job roles change as as people are, are being encouraged to work from home um and um just the, the nature of certain kinds of work uh, change um what uh, it kind of seems there's another another level of unfairness in the indis you know, indiscriminate sort of nature of a, of a pandemic um that almost makes the problem of evil a little bit worse it's like right it's we're, we're, we, we, the pandemic is going to hurt those at the, at the bottom even worse than those at the top who are already benefiting it, it seems like there's an extra sort of layer of unfairness with um, with the nature of a pandemic. Yeah, and I think we can appeal to people 
at both the, the heart, uh, the, the head, <laughs> I've got them mixed up now, the, the head and the heart, like at the level of the head, if we use reason, we could say, yes, this is messed up, this is horrible, and it's been indiscriminate and disproportionately unfair to some people. And then I could then push, so, so we, we, we hear their complaints, we understand it, we speak it back to them, we even speak it back to them in stronger, better terms than they've spoken it to us. So we express the problem of evil in better, stronger terms than what they've expressed to us. And then we say, and that's it, that's it. We actually only have two choices then, don't we? This, this problem of the virus has shown we really only have two choices. Choice number one, you know what, there is no God behind this universe. We're just atoms and molecules. We're just another species of life on this planet. We're just a blip in the timeline of the universe. In the same way the dinosaurs were just a blip in the timeline of the universe and an astronaut unfair came and wiped them out. Here we are as a species and this virus is coming now to unfairly wipe us out. And that's just it. We live in a world of Mother Nature where Mother Nature does not care. We're just another species of life. Just like when we, when we get grizzly bear versus salmon, there is no good guy, bad guy. Hey, it's just what Mother Nature does. Mother Nature is cruel, unfair, indiscriminate. There is no purpose behind this universe. We are going nowhere. That's choice number one, and that's what the pandemic proves. Or choice number two is, you know what? There has to be a personal, loving God behind this universe. And that's why we cry out, unfair. This is not how it should be. And so the, the, the fact that we sense injustice, unfairness, tragedy at this moment makes us realise there must be a good, wise, powerful God behind this universe. Otherwise, why else are we crying out? And then I say, and that's just that. If there really is a good God behind this universe, a powerful God behind this universe, we just got to trust that he has a good, wise, powerful reason for what's going on. We may not understand it, but there has to be a good, wise, powerful reason for what's going on that we can't see. That's how we can appeal to the level of the heart, uh, the head, I keep getting this up. It's so early in the morning. But, if we, but I think we also need to speak to the heart. And the heart is this, like where we just ask the second question, how are you going? Like really, how are you going right now? and give them permission to be vulnerable, to open up. We won't, we won't judge them. We're listening to understand, not listening to respond. And then finally, I, I say something like this. Hey, my wife, my kids, we pray every night for our friends. Can we please pray for you? And can we pray for a miracle? So I think what's changed for me in the last six months, if I, I've started not just saying, hey, we will pray for you, but I actually say, we will pray for a miracle. It seems like people are open to the language of, miracles again then i check in next week and i say hey how did it go and they go your prayer they they usually say i i no, i belong to a very conservative chinese tradition we don't we don't clap our hands in songs we look at our feet during the praise time like we we don't talk about angels or miracles anything supernatural like that but i've started using the name to miracle then i say hey uh, how'd it go? They say, your prayers were answered. And I say, it's a miracle. And they say, it is. It's a miracle. And I think in, in during Christendom, we reached out to people like we reached out to Lydia, the business person who was a God-fearer uh, through reason. But now that we're post-Christendom, it's almost like we return to the Old Testament 
where people can choose from a variety of worldviews, a variety of gods to believe in. And God's claim in the Old Testament to be the one true God to worship was, I'm the God who speaks, they don't speak, and I'm the God who answers prayer. These other gods don't answer prayer. And typically we've used the truth thing, God speaks, look at the Bible, read the Bible for yourself. But now I think we're post-Christendom and people have a variety of worldviews and gods to believe in. We say, hey, uh, we worship the God who answers prayer. And I'm just finding out, and, and I know it's limited time frame, six months so far, God seems to be answering the prayers that I offer to the, to the non-Christians when I check in the next week. It's very exciting. I like I like that. I can't hear you, Phil. I think you uh, your sound is not is not working. Um, is that working? Hello? Yes, we've got you back. Uh, don't know. Trying too many special things. I think on the uh, sound. Um, yeah, just um, I, I really like that that you're trying new things uh, out and just seeing if they they work and I think being able to do that and just seeing where where it takes you with your your friendships and and also having the opportunity to have those friendships I think sometimes we get so caught up in Christian stuff and and even in the pandemic I think people have been busy with online things trying to keep the community going trying to keep those meetings on zoom or whatever it is um, so just keeping those friendships going so that you can try out new things in your conversations and even put your own faith on the line i guess like well what happens if i don't if i pray and nothing happens what's going what's going to happen um I, I really really like that there's there's a bit of something for so i work with international students there's quite a lot about uh, conversation about the sort of shame on a type language i'd just be interested if you're finding that there's any pushback amongst christians about contextualizing the gospel in that way so i mean you, you just used a, a definition of sin of not worshiping and sort of said, well, let's try and, you didn't say avoid, but you were like, it's not necessarily uh, God's anger at sin that needs to be saved. And, and we're not necessarily talking about you've killed Jesus and therefore you need to pay off this debt. Have you had pushback on that, that it's like you're preaching another gospel now? Um, and, and if so, like, how, how do you clarify that amongst other Christians? No, this is, I'm not changing the gospel. Um, I liked how you went into acts for that, but e even with that, I've had, I've seen some pushback. That's like you're you're just saying, here's another gospel for one group, here's another gospel for someone else. How many gospels do we need? Uh, what would be your response to a, a, something like that? <coughs> yes, yeah, so so many uh, good responses. So first of all, I think you're you're not coming up with a new gospel. You're actually coming up with as um so the guy with the 3d gospel john what's his name uh jason georges jason georges that's right as he legitimately points out these are there in the bible already so we're not coming up with an extra biblical non-biblical way of explaining the gospel we're just exposing another dimension of the gospel that's already there in the bible it's amazing like um the opposite of shame and honor is face and then if we just search the word face in the Bible, we think, oh, my gosh, it's everywhere. How do I not see this? And that's because with our Western eyes, we were preoccupied with certain dimensions of the gospel. We miss the other dimension of shame, honor, uh, and face. So even that priestly blessing in numbers, may the God, you know, shine his face upon you. That's the opposite of shame and dishonor. This is may God honor you with his face. 
You look at face in the Psalms and it's everywhere. Lord, show me your face. And often now when I MC at church, I say to, I, I kick off the service. Today, God, we meet as your people. Show us your face. I kick off the service with that rather than just at the end as a priestly blessing. So number one, we're, ex we're exposing a dimension of the gospel that's already there. Number two, usually the pushback comes back because people are worried we're losing the objective, absolute categories of the gospel. And typically it's been explained, you know, guilt is because you've broken an external objective law, so you're objectively guilty. And then justification is an objective external status that God gives you, whereas shame is this subjective, vibey, internal emotional thing like i feel shameful and so yeah. i think that's usually the pushback from christians but jackson Wu, who's written several books on shame and honor he he shows well actually both categories of guilt and shame have objective and subjective categories uh dimensions so i can feel guilty and that's usually what the ironically the non-christian world reacts against guilt language they don't like guilt language because it's this subjective thing as christians we're trying to say no no it's this objective thing so we can feel guilty subjectively and at the same time they're objective standards of guilt and innocence like you can break laws you can keep laws and it's the same as shame and honor we can feel shameful yes that's subjective but at an objective level what shame is is you have fallen short of standards set by the tribe that you belong to and it's interesting that the bible has both dimensions of sin well, sin can be either a transgression where you break a law so that's more like guilt or sin can be where you fall short of the standard that god needs for you and that's romans isn't it all have sinned and fallen short of the glory so we have shamed god and our tribe, the people of God in that moment, we have dishonoured. And that's why the opposite of shame and dishonour is God lifting us up uh, bef before him. So it's it's interesting that in that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the, the, the lesson that Jesus brings out of that is whoever lifts themselves up before God, God will bring down, but whoever humbles themselves or acknowledges their shame and dishonour, God will lift up. So that's the opposite of shame and honour. So uh, the dimensions are there in the Bible mm. and and shame and dishonour are just as objective as guilt and innocence. And I remember when I used to teach theology, I think there were like 52 different Hebrew verbs for sin. So there are 52 different dimensions of sin in the Hebrew Old Testament. Wow. And David in his famous psalm, Psalm 51, where after he's sinned, you know, uh, where he commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills Uriah, the husband. He uses three main verbs to describe sin in that, in that psalm. One is to transgress, break a law, but the other one is to fall short. And the other thing is interesting, in Genesis chapter 3, we always call the events of Genesis 3 the fall. Like, it's an extra biblical word. We get no pushback when we say, ah, oh, it was the fall. But the fall implies that we fell short of the glory of the standard that God set before us. So it's, it's more, of a, more of a shame, dishonor category than a guilt, innocence category. Hi there. 
This is Phil Duncalf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. I think that's really helpful. And I, I yeah, like you said, I, the, the one that Jason Georges uses, Ephesians 2, which uses all the different categories as well regarding uh, broken law, reconciliation, honour, family. Um, there's, there's a lot in Ephesians 2 where you can draw all the three um, uh, dimensions, even like the power over the hostility, the breaking down the hostility between us and God. And so you've, you've got um, loads of that within the scripture. I, I think that's really, really helpful. And both Jackson Wu and Jason Georges would, would recommend them to anyone listening. Um, there's a there's a question here just just regarding that sort of experiential element that you were talking about. Um, where does testimony, our, our testimony, our experience as Christians, is that something that is almost worth more culturally speaking when, when sharing our faith? Where, where should that fit in? Should it be a part of our apologetic um, as well? Yeah, I, I definitely, definitely, definitely think so. Like testimony, I think it's almost essential. It's not this secret sauce we'll, that we pour on or this optional accessory like leather seats in your car. I The more I think about it, the more essential I think testimony is. And, I, and I'll give you a variety of reasons. I listened to Craig Springer from Alpha USA and it was talking about Barna.com, which does a lot of research on this. Barna.com says the average non-believing friend has a problem with Christianity. They have a problem with the abstract idea of Christianity, but they don't have a problem with a Christian friend in their life. And we get this all the time, like all our non-believing friends who hate Christianity, but then they meet us and say, oh, hey, you're all right, meaning somehow the concrete manifestation of Christianity in you as a person, that's okay. And they would prefer to hear the gospel not from some abstract Christian website, but from you, their personal friend. So number one, it's almost the only way our non-believing friends will hear the gospel now through our personal testimony. Number two, and this is starting to do the rounds in psychology, sociology things, because I'm hearing this drop quite a few times. I, I came across it in the New York Times a few weeks ago. I came across it in a podcast called You Are Not So Smart. They call it, and they give this story of how there's this African-American in America who does stand-up comedy in front of Ku Klux Klansmen. And usually they, he gets a lot of pushback. Hey, you know, you're black, we hate blacks, you know, we're from the Ku Klux Klan. But as they get to know him personally, they suddenly realise, I actually have no problem with black people. And, they, 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 and people leave the Ku Klux Klan because now they have met, you know, a person, not, not, not the idea of blackness, but they've actually met the person. So again, number two, if, we're, if our non-believing friends are going to believe, it has to come through us as a person telling them our personal testimony. But number three, I've been listening to another podcast called The Reformandum Initiative, I think it's called. It's either Reformation Initiative or The Reformandum Initiative. And it's, 
evangelical Protestants trying to reach out to their Roman Catholic friends. You know, I, I think obviously the Roman Catholic universe is a why universe and, and many Roman Catholics have the gospel, believe in the gospel. But the big premise of this is many Roman Catholic friends, actually the gospel is there, they're just not hearing it, where they are. And so how can we tell them the gospel? And they found out it's testimony. It's testimony. If we try to do this propositional, hey, this is what you believe, this is what we believe, we have this overlap here, but this is what we don't believe, this is what you don't believe, that's not going to work. It has to come through testimony. This is my story. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, well, we've had a, a couple of Roman Catholics on here. <laughs> yeah. I'd be interested to hear that people are trying to evangelize them with their testimony. Um, Dan, have you, you got any questions? You've been... Uh, just listening in. Yeah, I, I wanted to get a little bit about your your book and what kind of led mm. you to to write your book because I, I I really enjoyed um, uh, reading your 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 book uh, Evangelism in a, in a skeptical world. Is that I can't remember now. That's right. I think that's yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just might. I'll pull them off the bookshelf. Just. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I'll wait for him to to get back. Yeah, yeah. He won't hear me. It's a good book. Well, uh, he's coming back. Nothing like live radio. Radio silence. That's the worst thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was pulled up um, a question uh, a statement just talking about how testimony is good for Mormon neighbours and friends as well. From our, yeah, that's uh, right. Definitely. Um, but yeah, yeah no, I, I really enjoyed your your book. I know a lot of people have been very positive uh, about. It. I'm sure you've got lots of positive feedback about. It, but I've just been interested in, uh, yeah, what kind of led you to 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 writing that book and really. Yeah, so I used to teach in a Bible college and I used to teach theology, preaching, ethics. And we had this guy teaching evangelism called John Chapman, unfortunately dead now, passed away from old age. And that, that was it. He was getting old. He wanted to retire. And the principal of the Bible college comes into my office and says, Sam, John Chapman wants to retire. You are now teaching evangelism. And I said, no, because I can never be John Chapman. The guy is a legend. It would be silly to think I can follow in his footsteps. And then I thought, that's it. For the first time as, a, as an Asian, I stood up for myself. I said, no, I wasn't a people pleaser. But the next day, boom, 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 these footsteps come storming to my office. And it was John Chapman, larger-than-life figure, says, brother, you are teaching evangelism. And he dumped his portfolio on me and walked away. And this was a 45-hour course, uh, Australian College of Theology accredited, master's level, and and his, his notes were gobbledygook. They were, they were rubbish, illegible, <laughs> handwritten. So I thought, I have to go, I've got to come up with a 45-hour course, blank slate. And I thought, you know what? Let's do it. Blank slate. Because this is a new normal. Australia's post-Christian, post-reached, post-church. All our other methods and ways of doing evangelism have presupposed Christendom. And so let's try a new way. Uh, oh, hang on, my my computer battery is low hang on oh see these these are the these are the good things again batteries fail it's the, <laughs> okay cool. it's a full on you know you think you're plugged in but you're not the, uh, there's a little white cord down. oh I, that's right i have to plug this in okay so we are charged again so then i thought well all our prior methods of learning evangelism have presupposed christendom let's let's be blank slate how would we reach the West if we were missionaries starting from scratch? I know there's no stuff, there's no true thing as a blank slate. We're all a presupposition. But that, that led to the project. I thought, okay. And so I built it up gradually over the years. 
uh, and I, I got missiologists to come and share how they reach, reach Australia. So it was based on that. And so out of that came, yes, the book you're talking about, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. And it must have touched a nerve, did way better than what I thought it would. More people than just my mother and my wife bought it. It won some award with Christianity Today, something like that. But then the, the fallback on that book was, well, obviously, it was a book designed to be a textbook for seminary and Bible college students who were going to some form of semi-professional ministry. There's a lot of stuff there on how to give talks, uh, apologetics, how to answer questions. And someone said, well, for the average person who doesn't go to Bible college, who doesn't lead a Bible study, who's never going to give a talk at an event, uh, can you write something for them? So out of that book came this one, you know, how to talk about Jesus without being that guy, personal evangelism in a skeptical world. And a big premise of this book is up until now, if you did evangelism, a course anywhere, you either got taught how to give a public talk at a public church event, like a 20 minute Bible talk monologue, or you got taught how to walk up to a stranger on a university campus or train and evangelize them. But what do you do with space in the middle? My friends and family who I see every day and will keep on seeing every day, and if I have an awkward conversation with them, it's going to make things really awkward for the next 10, 20 years when I have to keep seeing them. So sometimes there's a space in the middle. How do I tell my friends and family about Jesus? And so that's what led to this book, How to, how to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Nice. I, I really like that because that, that space is something that I'm trying to work through in, in my work as well. Uh, where I last heard you speak with um, UCCF, I work with Friends International, which often works alongside them here in the UK uh, on campus, but also trying to connect local churches. So they're doing that kind of you're, you're a friend, you're someone I care about. My faith is important to me. How can I? Be plausible. I like the the way that you you bring plausibility into this and and connect you with the community. That there's this experience that I am convinced by. Yes, there's the reason, but there's also the experience, and and God speaks in that experience as well. And I found that all really really helpful. Um, I'd just be interested just to un, unpick that uh, that guy. The, the sort of how do how do you deal with that? Um, you talk a bit about that in your evangelism in a skeptical world, but how do you bridge the um, the fear that many people have that this is just weird? Um, my recommendation is just to accept just just accept the weirdness and just go for it. Um, but I'd just be interested to to hear how you you get over that. I'm, I'm recognizing that we're kind of cutting close to time, but maybe a short sort of five three minute summary of what what how you get over being that that guy that weirdo that keeps speaking about Jesus. Yeah, and I think. Because I myself work one or two days a week as a doctor, so I work in a very secular environment. And if I had more time, I would share stories where Christian nurses and doctors discover I'm a Christian and we come out to each other, but it's taken us five or ten years to discover that. I, I think even Christians can't come out to each other. So I think that's what the book is touching on. There is a weirdness about being a Christian. And I remember giving a talk title, How to Be how to talk about Jesus without being that guy. And I gave it a Gospel Coalition seminar in the USA. And it, it packed the room, like 250 people, standing room only. And I thought, wow, I've touched a cultural nerve here. Everyone realises there's social awkwardness about talking about Jesus. 
So on the one hand, I say just recognise it is what it is. It's a product of the West. We ha we've had a very strict, sacred, secular, uh, private, public divide ever since the Western Enlightenment. Your non-Western friends don't have this sacred, secular divide. That's why your taxi driver, you know, from Africa will have a religious symbol on their mirror. Your Asian green grocer will have an idol set up in their shop. They don't have this mm. sacred, secular divide. We have. So just understand it's a Western phenomenon. So it's not just you that feels awkward. It's actually your non-believing friend feels just as awkward. So recognize it's a social awkwardness that's been constructed by the Western alignment. But secondly, as you say, Phil, it's, it's a band-aid. Just rip it off. The sooner you do it, the better. And I, I have found um, if you try to do it slowly, it's even more awkward. Just come out and say, right from the start, I say, hey, my wife, my kids, we're people of faith. Uh, we meet on Sundays and this is what we do and I and I I once got invited to speak at a secular consulting firm called Bain Consulting and they're international and they brought me in under their diversity and inclusiveness umbrella so I think two meetings ago they brought like a lesbian on to explain what is just explain how we can better understand where she's coming from the previous meeting they had a transgender person and to, this was my turn a person of faith because now we're just as marginalised as misunderstood. And I said, you got to understand what it's like to me to be a person of faith. This is something that's so true, beautiful and meaningful to me. And you're asking me to suppress it and keep it in private. I, I, but it's who I am. I can't be no other. You can't ask me to stop being Asian, Australian, because it's who I am. And I am a person of faith. And that's how I explained to the consulting firm. And I said... And you got to understand, uh, like on a Sunday when you go buy bread and you ask the lady behind the counter, how's your day? She said, oh, I've been good. How's your day been? And I said, it's good. And then she said, what did you do? And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to tell her I went to church this morning. And I thought, <laughs> I feel, and I said to this Bain Consulting Diversity and Inclusiveness Group, I said, you got to understand how awkward it is for us to even come out to say this because society has made it awkward for us, but it's who I am and I can be no other. It's what's most deep and meaningful to me. So that, rip it mm. off. It, it's a Band-Aid. And I think the easiest way is saying, hey, my wife and I, we're people of faith. We pray for our friends. Um, in fact, how can we pray for you? So I think use prayer as, as the entry point because people... People love prayer. They have no problem with prayer uh, and, and, and that we have a faith and we can be no other. That, that's yeah. awesome. Amazing. Dan, I, go for it. I, yeah, I was going to say, I like that you feel like that too because it makes me feel better. I always think like when I read yeah. a book, you know, I, I read a book and I think, well, it's just a super Christian. You know, he just, you know, just washing his hands after the toilet and you know, just like, you know, <laughs> our, our sins have been washed away by the blood of the lamb, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know so it's um no it's refreshing it's it's good so i appreciate your honesty because i think that 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 definitely connects to me and i'm sure it will connect with other people that actually um you know you teach it but it's still you do feel like you're coming out it's such an odd thing because i know like i have friends um you know i, I when i first came a christian I was in a pentecostal church and my Af african brothers and sisters don't have any issue with with that it's just just do it it's just like yeah it's just like and me i'm just like you know, like someone says, what do you do at the weekend? And I'm obviously like having an almost an anxiety attack. Uh, but I'm not ashamed. It's not because I'm ashamed. It's because I, I don't know. I'm like, what? Well, I went I went to church. They're like, oh, OK, cool. How was that? Yes, yeah, like, that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, right. so, so in, this, um, 
in this diversity inclusiveness group. And they had, like, it was done online because it was during COVID. And, but I could see there were like, 100 people like, watching in and they said, well, how can we better understand you people of faith, uh, peoples of faith, uh, what are our unconscious biases that we can check at the door? And I, I, exactly what you just said, Dan, I said, you got to understand what a terrifying experience Monday morning is for us Christians at work. We're terrified we're going to be asked, what did you do on the weekend? Because we know we're not going to be allowed to say what we really did do on the weekend. And that mm. is we met in a church, we worshipped the God who loves and made us, and, and you know, we, we had a deep community. Uh, and, then, and then I said, and then so, well, how can we better care for you i said why don't you because we we love praying for our friends and family why don't you give us prayer points to pray for and everyone's writing this down oh yeah this is fantastic and so i thought wow so 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 during the discussion and the chat time everyone said i'm gonna bet understand that on a monday morning when i check in i need to let them give them permission to talk about their worship experience their faith experience on sunday and also give them a prayer point to pray for because they love to pray for me. That's amazing. That's <laughs> so good. I, yeah. I, I found I found that interesting. I, I've, you're not the only, you're not the first person that I've talked to that's that's used that sort of inclusive banner to be like, look, this is this is faith that I, I need to be included as well. Um, and and I think even in my work as a, I'm also a chaplain in the interfaith chaplaincy. And they've only just sort of allowed evangelicals. <laughs> so Ed Chapman's like, I'm taking a risk with you guys because we've got this no proselytizing rule, so please don't mess it up. <laughs> so I mean, you've got, we've got evangelical students on the campus, so they've got to accommodate their, their spiritual needs as well. So I think there's definitely a space for that, um, a willingness to, to bring uh, that in. But I think also use that carefully. Be, be really sensitive with that. But I think there's also a growing sense that if you – you are open quickly in the sense of I'm a Christian. Um, this is this is what I believe, but I'm willing just to, I, I'd love just to be a mate and, and go for a walk and talk about all things. Um, but just to let you know, this is important and it'll probably come up in our conversations. Um, that's the kind of strategy that I'm trying to utilize in, in work. And it seems to be a, a little bit more uh, fruitful just because people aren't under the assumption or uh, it's not as subtle and sly it's just this is who I am uh, and I'm not trying to convert you it'd be great if you did I'll be honest but <laughs> let's just let's just have a friendship um, yeah, yeah yeah and just adding to that I have a friend called Phil Nicholson who's an OMF missionary in Taiwan just returned to Australia so when when you're missionary Taiwan again it's exactly what you're dealing with Phil it's a very multi-faith society, Christianity is just one of many faiths. And he says the, the most helpful thing is to see, we return to the book of Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, where there are three categories of people in Luke. You had the disciples, so they were the inner circle, who you could say were saved. You had the religious opponents who opposed Jesus. But you had this third category, and they were the crowds, the hanger-oners, who were just checking it out hoping to see maybe something spectacular. So the observers, and much of the synoptics is how do we reach the crowds? Not, not the religious people, but how do we reach the crowds? And Phil said he loves a parable of the 10 lepers because 10 lepers call out to Jesus. They ask for a miracle. They ask for a blessing. And all 10 get healed miraculously. They, they get blessed. They, they get the healing. They get the miracle. But only one comes back to know Jesus personally. And that's how we, we can explain Jesus to 
crowds right now. You know, there's a God out there. He loves you. Uh, you, you may call out to him in times of crisis, and people do, amazingly, and he may give you the healing, the blessing, the miracle that you're looking for, but if that's all you want from Jesus, it's not that you want too much, it's you want too little. He wants to be more than just a business acquaintance who gives you what you're asking. He actually wants you to come to know him personally, and I think that's how we can do a lot of this, um, our, our ministry, now that we're in this multi-faith, multi-belief universe. Hmm. That's, that's really helpful. That's uh, really helpful. I'd love to ask more questions, but I'm very aware of the time, Sam, that you've, you've given so generously to us. Um, just very last thing is you've, you've shared a bunch of resources. It was obviously your book. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to, to share, things that we should uh, listen, watch, um, any sort of final resources that you, you want to you ping out there? Yeah, so obviously the two books that I've just put out that I flashed up before, but here they are again. And then, um, but I will see you. There we go. That'll be the caption on the uh, yeah. on the recording. <laughs> That's right. I but I worked with City Bible Forum, and like I say, last year we put out something called the Post COVID Playbook, which keeps staying in up to date. Like we thought we we have missed. You know, the, the cultural vibe, COVID keeps coming back, so it stays relevant. Post-COVID playbook, so how to evangelise in a post-COVID world. Uh, and that's online. So we call it a book, but really videos and a PDF that you can get online. And it's all, I think it's all available for free. Just go register. But the second one is how to share Jesus at work. That's that funny space. Like we want to tell our friends and family about Jesus, but how do I tell my friends at work about Jesus? Because we spend more time with them than we do with almost any other category of friends. And so I think that you're going to put the link there, but I'll just say what it is. Oh, where is it? I think it's plus.citybibleforum.org slash share Jesus. And it's just nine lessons, which involves a five to ten minute video from me. So very short, followed by a PDF that you can download with discussion questions for either yourself or your small group. And then just all those podcasts that I was just reading off now, Referendum Initiative, Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen and the Gospel Coalition. And with City Bible Forum, we have one called Bigger Questions that I find very, very helpful. And I'm also finding the secular non-Christian podcast, You Are Not So Smart, to be very helpful because they do a lot of stuff on why people do change what they believe. Why why do people change their minds or their beliefs or, or their views? Amazing. Sam, thank you so much for your time. Got a couple of good uh, bits of feedback there. Such a good and fun interview. Thank you. Loved it thank on you. Facebook. Um, so thanks for your time. Dan, any last words? No, just uh, thank you very much, Sam, and, and enjoy your, uh, your, your day at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, unbelievable. I do what Dan does, um, except he's better trained, better qualified, but in the wisdom <laughs> of the health government, they, they think a doctor needs to do it. So I just hold a leg, a trained blind monkey. <laughs> Not that Dan is a trained blind monkey, yeah. but just to show you, <laughs> anyone can do what I do. Amazing. I just got to make sure I don't get my lefts and rights mixed up. I'm almost going, okay. Or, or the head and the heart. Head and the heart as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To get right. If it's your left, that would be my right, wouldn't it? <laughs> There's always that moment <laughs> I pause. Awesome. So we'll, we'll uh, end it there. Uh, Sam, if you do need to dash off while I'm closing the stream, feel free. It's been a pleasure. 
Um, but just to let you know, we've got a few talks lined up for August. Well, two talks lined up, one talking about evangelism, depression and Christianity and where that fits uh, with sort of mental health. That's with Philippa Wilson, who's written uh, a devotional uh, called, oh, it's gone, uh, Certain Brightness, I think it's called. Um, so we'll have her on in August. And we've also just working on getting Joshua Swamidas, who's written the genealogical Adam and Eve. So if you like your Adam and Eve debate, uh, join us for that. Watch out for us on, on social media and the updates will be in. Uh, thanks again to those who support us financially. Your patrons are amazing. We're very blessed by you. Um, we're on patreon.com if you want to join that group. That would be amazing, but no worries. We're, we're very blessed with those who support us. So thank you, and we enjoy doing this anyway. So God bless you, and thank you for joining us for an hour, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.